0: Well, for those of you who weren't here last week because of my little creative moment there, we started a series entitled, Not for a Moment. And I don't know if we'll go on past this week or not, but I've got a really, just uh this is the message that was really kind of spurred the series. And so maybe there's just one here this morning who needs the message. I don't know. But if it is, man, would you listen intently to God's most holy word? Well, I'm, a, I'm really not a music guy. I love preaching and, and sports radio and all that kind of stuff. My favorite group is our praise band and praise team, amen. I mean, that is like, that is like, they ought to be on radio, you know, and it's just great. But every once in a while when I'm driving a long distance, if I start to get a little sleepy or if I get bored and driving makes me bored, I will play with the radio. On one of those trips, I was... Just, you know, scanning through, and I came across a country music station. And this country music station played a song by a group called Ricochet, I think. I take no knowledge of that. But uh, evidently it was about a guy who was sitting in church, so I noticed that. And he noticed the lady that he had grown up with, and she was looking at him. And here's the chorus. By the way, you can only do this in country music. And bad rap. But, but here it is. She's got her daddy's money and her mama's good looks. More laughs than a stack of comic books. Isn't that great? A wild imagination, a college education, and all adds up to a deadly combination. <laughs> She's a good bass fisher and a dynamite kisser. Now, I'm telling you, you just don't get that except in country music. You cannot get bass fishing and kissing in one line except in country music, you know? She's country as a turnip green. She's got her daddy's money, her mama's good looks, and look who's looking at me. (laughs) Well, it's kind of a cute song because the author's singing about things that we think makes people successful. Money, good looks, education, solid family. Matter of fact, there's probably some of you, as I talk about those things, you might be a a, a little envious or a little jealous because we think to ourselves, if only I had their advantages, if only I had their money, their family background, their pedigree, their education, then I could accomplish great things in my life. Several years ago, there was a famous study done by Victor and Mildred Gertzel. And I hope I said their name right. They wrote a book entitled Cradle of Eminence. And in that book, they examined over uh, several hundred highly successful people throughout history. People like Churchill and Franklin Delano Roosevelt, Helen Keller, Schweitzer, Barton, Gandhi, Einstein, Freud, and so on. And they kind of wanted to see if there was any commonalities that made these folks great in, in their time. And what they found was surprising. They discovered that three-fourths of all of the children, or of all of the, the adults that they studied, that as children, three-fourths of them endured poverty. Most of them object poverty, and they came from broken homes. They found that of all, nearly all of the writers, 74 out of the 85 writers who wrote fiction and drama, and 16 out of the 20 poets that were you know, surveyed in the book. They came from homes that experienced tense, and I quote, tense psychological drama. Tense psychological drama. In other words, their parents didn't get along at all. They screamed at each other, and there was emotional, if not physical, abuse in the home and over a fourth of these, over 25% of these great people suffered from some kind of physical ailment, such as blindness, deafness, or crippled limbs. It makes one wonder if the kind of home these men and women endured as children influenced the type of people they became as adults. I would like to look at one of these children in the Bible. The story is really starts back in the book of Genesis, which is just kind of... Flop your Bible open about Genesis chapter 35, 37. And we're just going to kind of follow the story of this guy named Joseph. Our text is going to come from the book of Hebrews, chapter 13, verse 5. It's the latter part of this wonderful book. And God has said, never will I leave you. Never will I forsake you. Never will I leave you. Never will I forsake you. And quite honestly, that's a message that many of us need to hear or rehear or reaffirm in our own faith that never God says, Will I leave you? Never God says, Will I forsake you. Amen? Isn't it easy to feel left out? Isn't it easy to feel forsaken? Matter of fact, Don, you know, had the Don Johnson kind of got back from vacation look going on and. Joe, Pastor Joe's back from Africa. He's got that Miami Vice, you know, Don Johnson look going on. And me, I just got Old Navy look, you know. I mean, it's just, I didn't get the memo. It's easy to feel left out. God says, no, I'm never going to leave you. I'm never going to forsake you. And there's this incredible story in the Old Testament from the life of Joseph. Joseph, I'm telling you overcame similar problems in his life. Joseph came from a highly dysfunctional family. He had 12 brothers, and those 12 brothers were born out of four mothers. You talk about a blended family, buddy, they had a blended family. The brothers didn't get along with each other at all. They were always fussing, they were always fighting, they were always bickering. The only thing they agreed on is that they all Hated Joseph. It's not hard to find out the source of the hatred. Jacob, all 12's fathers, all 12 of the boys' daddy. Joseph was his favorite. It was clear. it, It was not even close that there was impartiality between the boys. Joseph was clearly Jacob's favorite. When all the boys would go off to work, it was Joseph who would stay home with daddy. When all the boys were... We're doing the hard manual labor. It was Joseph who would sit at Jacob's feet. When all the boys would, would do well, it was jo- Joseph who got the coat of many colors by his father, Jacob. Clearly, this was, the, this was the eye of Jacob's heart. You know, it was the apple of Jacob's eye. It was the love of his heart. And it was, it was to such a degree that it caused jealous and envy in his brothers. And then he had these crazy dreams. And God many times speaks to us in dreams. And I, I think more so in the Old Testament than in the New. And more certainly in that day than in this day. I think God speaks to us during our waking hours through this thing called the Bible. Amen. And so he had these dreams and he had two dreams and the dream was basically that the whole family will bow down before Joseph now if you're the 11th boy out of 12 boys in that culture in that day nobody bows down will bow down to the 11th boy out of 12 It just didn't happen. It was the number one son that had the preeminence. It was the number one son that had the birthright. It was the number one son that would receive the blessing. It was not the 11th son. And so when he had went, his father sent him to the field with his coat of many colors and sent him to the field to check on something for for his father. And he told the brothers about the dream they just couldn't contain the rage anymore, and they plotted to kill him. Reuben spoke up and said, well, let's don't kill him. Let's just put him in a pit. That way it won't be by our hand that he dies. Then there were some Ishmaelites that came along. They were distant cousins and distant relatives to, to the boys. And they thought, well, you know, we'll just kind of and greed kicked in, and greed kicked over, or greed kicked in, and so they decided to turn the plan so that Joseph was now sold to some distant kin who were on their way to Egypt. Listen to Genesis thirty-seven verses twenty-six and twenty-seven. It says, "What will we gain if we bother? What will we gain if we kill our brother and cover up his blood? Come." Let's sell him to the Ishmaelites and lay not our hands on him. After all, he is our brother. Well, that's a fine, how do you do? We're not going to kill him, but we're going to sell him. We're just going to get rid of him. We don't ever want to see his daddy-favored face in our home again. So this dysfunctional family. So Joseph to the Ishmaelites, not knowing what would wait him, not even knowing where they would go, is that they were just going to go to Egypt. They took off his coat. They killed a goat and just poured the blood of that goat all over that coat. Went back to their father, Jacob, told the story, how, or they just simply said, we have his coat, it's covered in blood. And Jacob, the dad, Just rent his clothes, grieving in anger, grieving in heartbreak, grieving in just, just brokenness that his favorite son, Joseph, was dead. And not a one of the boys stepped up, manned up, to comfort an old man's broken heart. You want to talk dysfunctional? You want to talk about a family at the end of their rope? You want to talk about a family? Man, here's Joseph's family. Your family may be dysfunctional as well. You may have deep hurts and private pains so deep you can't even understand it. You just feel it. But there's no words to express it. For you, because of the anger, the turmoil, the brokenness of your family situation, it may be hard for you to hear God's voice above the bickering, above the drama, above the cutting words. Because of the pit, those scars and those words leave ugly emotional scars. And I don't know why it's like that for you. I honestly don't. What I do know is that God is good, and God is constant, and God is sovereign, and God has given us his most precious word in the form of a promise. And he has said, never will I leave you, and never will I forsake you. Doesn't matter how bad it gets at home. Doesn't matter what pit you're thrown into. Doesn't matter what uncertain you face in your future he says never will I leave you never will I forsake you he is saying for not for one moment have I ever forsaken you so as a 17 year old Joseph is stripped of everything he knows he's now in Egypt by the way Egypt had already become a a superpower of sorts it had been that way before he'd born they'd already built their pyramids and the sphinx and And the temple of Luxor. In those days, as in now, I guess before the recent turmoil in Egypt, Egypt was a tourist attraction. It it was a tourist paradise. But Joseph wasn't there as a tourist, he was there as a slave. He'd been ripped from his home and he'd been ripped from his family. He'd been dragged across the desert to a land that he'd never known, surrounded by strange people who spoke a strange language that he couldn't understand. At 17, he lost everything that he loved and considered important. And now he lived at the whim of his master. He's the lowest form of life in the nation of Egypt. He has nothing. He owns nothing. In fact, he is nothing. He's a slave. He has no rights. There's no consulate. There's no embassy that he can go to for reprieve. He's stuck in Egypt. Didn't seem fair, did it? This guy by the name of Potiphar, who is the chief guard of Pharaoh's prison system, very close in the kind of the cabinet member of of Pharaoh's, you know, government, kind of the way it worked. And so he had an acquaintance with. Pharaoh, but he had a man of responsibilities, he bought Joseph from the Ishmaelites, and he puts him in his house, and he noticed something. He noticed that even though Joseph had no right and no status and no value, Joseph apparently had something that other slaves in Egypt who did not, he had a God who cared for him, and he had a God who was with him. Matter of fact, if you turn to Genesis chapter 39, I want you to understand because most ordinary folks who go through problems like Joseph would even doubt if God is even there. We would ask, God, where are you? What's going on? God, don't you care about me? God, please listen. Come to my aid. Come to my side. We would pray those kind of prayers, wouldn't we? And yet... In chapter 39, throughout the rest of the story of Joseph, there's this one sentence that God just seems to want to hammer over and over and over again. And here it is. The Lord was with Joseph. The Lord was with Joseph. Genesis 39, verses 2, 3, 5, 21 and 23. Over and over it says, and the Lord was with Joseph. And everything he did was blessed. All because God didn't forsake Joseph, Joseph was successful in everything he did. Matter of fact, that that success overflowed in other places. Look at Genesis 39 and verse 5. It says, From the time Potiphar put him in charge of his household and all and of all that he owned, the Lord blessed the household of the Egyptians because of Joseph. The blessing of the Lord was on everything Potiphar had, both in his home and in his field. Not because of Joseph. But because God was with Joseph. By the way, that same promise that Joseph had, you have. He said, never will I leave you. Never will I forsake you. Different situation, to be sure, but same promise. Well, now, Joseph is a strapping young man. He's probably now in his early 20s. He has risen to a place of prominence in Potiphar's house. In fact, the Bible tells us that everything that Potiphar, he put everything under Joseph's care. The only thing he had to worry about, the Bible tells us, is what he was going to have for dinner. Who wouldn't like to have a life like that? But all wasn't, as well as that verse may indicate, because evidently there was problems between Mr. and Mrs. Potiphar. Maybe because of the demands of the Egyptian army or the Egyptian palace. Maybe because of, of Pharaoh's... Personality, he was giving more time to his occupation, to his employment than he was to his family. And for whatever reason, Mrs. Potiphar begins to make sexual advances at this young man named Joseph. Big, brawn, strappy, muscular, good looking. Yeah. Amen? amen? You better amen right there. And Potiphar's wife starts coming on to Joseph. Oh, at first, I'm sure it starts like like maybe what happens in your workplace. It's just a notice. It's the glance. It's it's that prolonged eye-to-eye contact. And and then it's a little flirting and and a little touching and a little, little, you know, cat and mouse game, a little innuendo. And then it just kind of builds up. And she made all of these advances toward Joseph, and Joseph returned none of them. Finally, it escalated to the point where she physically put her hands on him to try to seduce him. He ran, the clothes tore, she enraged and and just embarrassed, started screaming that Joseph had tried to rape her, she lied, Potiphar came home, Joseph told the truth... His woman lied. Joseph ends up in jail. I want you to understand that Joseph ends up in jail and he did absolutely nothing wrong. You ever felt that way? ever felt like, God, I am doing the best I can. Come on. You got to work with me here. I'm doing what's right. I'm giving it my all and I'm giving it my best and I'm still in jail. But that jail is... Economic, whether that gel is health, whether that gel is relational, whether that gel is your marriage, whether that gel is strife with your children, whatever that internal gel you have, it just seems to incarcerate your options and you feel trapped with no hope, no way out. You ever been there? I can't explain why we end up there. I can just tell you that there's a promise from God to us who end up there. And it's just simply God has said, never will I leave you, never will I forsake you. It's God who said, never, not for one moment, will I leave you, and not for one moment, You may not hear my voice, but know the truth. Not for one moment have I ever turned my back on you. Well, Joseph, again, whatever he does, God blesses. And Joseph quickly rises to a a place where the, the, the leader of that kind of Cell or prison block gives all kind of authority and everything over to, to Joseph. And he's running things. And Joseph's in prison. And God does it again. Genesis chapter 39, verses 21 through 33. The Lord was with Joseph. He showed him kindness and granted him favor in the eyes of the prison warden. So the warden put Joseph in charge of all of those things that he, that was, that he held in the prison. And he was made responsible for all that was done there. And the warden paid no attention to anything under Joseph's care because the Lord was with him twice, it says that. And the Lord was with him, was with Joseph, and gave him success in whatever he did. You say, that's all well and good, but Joseph is still in jail. I get that. You say, that's all well and good, but he's still an incarcerated man. I understand that. But it doesn't, your circumstance, the promises of God are not conditional on your circumstances. God's promises are sure. He says, never will I leave you. words that ought to just be burned in our heart when we're lonely and we're discouraged and we're tired and we're isolated, depressed, when we feel like we're in chains and bonds because of life and the circumstances of life, when it seems like the best that we have tried to do, we still end up being ridiculed and persecuted for it. We need to claim the promise of God, never will I leave you and never, never, never will I forsake you. So here's Joseph, he's in jail. Time passes. Not quite sure how much time, but time passes. Something happens in Pharaoh's kind of upper echelon. And he banishes the cupbearer and the baker. Two pretty important positions, you don't want to be poisoned by those guys, and in the food, and so they were banished to the prison. And one night, the cupbearer had a dream, and the other night, the baker had a dream, and Joseph interpreted both of those dreams, and in three days, both of the dreams happened exactly as Joseph interpreted. And when the cupbearer's dream came true, and he was restored back to Pharaoh's favor, he said, please remember me to Pharaoh. And the Bible says that he forgot all about Joseph, have you ever done something for somebody and you thought they would do good in return and when they did, you just go, all you wanted was just a little, a little relief. I mean, you're just in jail, well, fast forward. I like verses in the Old Testament that say the eyes of the Lord range throughout the earth to strengthen those whose hearts are fully committed to him. Psalm 34 verse 15 says the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and his ears attended to their cry. And everyone's favorite, Romans eight twenty-eight: For we know that all things work together for them that love God to those who are called according to his purpose. But yet sometimes we still remain in prison. Sometimes we still feel like we're in the pit. Sometimes our family is dysfunctional. Sometimes life just isn't making sense and God is silent. And we wonder, does God really care? Does God even know where I'm at? Does even God know what's going on with me? And the Bible says, Hebrews 13, 5, never will I leave you. Never Will I forsake you? I read a book, or part of a book by Greg Origori, and it's called Growing Pains of the Soul, and he said this, there's something suspect about a faith that has never been tested. That's a true line. There is something suspect about a faith that's never been tested. An army going through basic training is not ready for battle. Not until the soldiers have faced the, the battle, have been under fire, do they consider themselves proven hardened, and worthy. A ship cannot prove it's been sturdily built as long as it stays in dry dock. Its hull must get wet. It must face the storms to demonstrate genuine seaworthiness. Well, let's fast forward. Joseph interprets the two dreams for Pharaoh because he had a dream, and and the cupbearer, nobody, the wisest men in Egypt, couldn't figure it out. The cupbearer said, hey, you know, years ago there was this Young guy in prison, and I had a dream, and he kind of, Pharaoh said, well, go get him. And they gave him a bath, and they cleaned him up, and he was brought into Pharaoh. And basically, here was the dream. Joseph said, Pharaoh, you're going to have seven years of unbelievable prosperity. It is going to be great. It's going to be incredible. It's going to be enormous. But as great as those seven years of prosperity are, Pharaoh, you're going to have seven years of horrible famine. In fact, the famine is going to be so bad that everybody will forget the seven wonderful years of prosperity because the famine is so bad. Pharaoh looked at Joseph and said, what do we do? Joseph just ripped off a plan. And in that moment, Pharaoh said, you're the guy in charge, Joseph. And Joseph, who was just simply a slave and a prisoner a matter of minutes ago, went to become the second in command in all of Egypt. Matter of fact, there was no one any higher than Joseph except for Pharaoh. And then an ironic story, it's an incredible story with, with so many plot twists, Joseph gets his entire family down to the palaces of Egypt. And there, true to his dream of 39 years prior. That's right. From the time of his dream and his time of being sold into Egypt until this very moment, 39 years And Joseph is in that awkward moment. He didn't know how to tell his brothers that he was Joseph. He didn't know how to tell his family. He didn't know how to tell it. He didn't, and his, he wasn't sure how his brothers were going to react. Genesis chapter 45, verses 3 and 5 said this. Joseph said to his brothers, by the way, he just blurts it out. I'm Joseph. Is my father still living? But his brothers weren't able to answer him because they were terrified at his presence. And wouldn't you be too? 39 years ago, you tried to kill this kid. 39 years ago, you put him in a pit. 39 years ago, you sold him to Israel, Ishmaelites. 39 years ago, you lied to his father and told him that you were dead. And his brothers were terrified at his presence and Joseph could have killed them all and it would have been absolutely appropriate because he was second in command of all of Egypt. You talk about revenge factor. He could have done it. But he said, then Joseph said to his brothers, come close to me. And when they'd done so, he said, I'm your brother Joseph, the one you sold into Egypt. Oh, he knew. And now, do not be distressed and do not be angry with yourselves for selling me here because it was to save the lives that God sent me ahead of you. And look at verse 7 and 8 with a moment of clarity. God sent me, Joseph said, God sent me ahead of you to preserve. For you a remnant to the earth to save your lives by the great deliverance. So then it was not you who set me here, but God. He made me father to Pharaoh, Lord of his entire household, and ruler of all the earth. Listen, it was not your design, but it was all part of God's plan. Listen, when your moment of dysfunctionality is past, when the sentence in jail is over, when you're out of the pit, I don't know if you're going to have that moment of clarity like Joseph had. In fact, I'd rather think that most of us don't have that moment of clarity that Joseph had. But what I will tell you, and what you do have, is a God who says, I will never leave you, and I will never forsake you. Whether it's in your family, and there's fighting, and fussing, and bickering. Whether you're in the pit, whether you're in unfamiliar territory, whether you're just... and trouble for doing what's right he says i will never leave you i will never forsake you it is an incredible statement of faith god says i will never leave you man listen what that simply says is he will not abandon us desert us leave us helpless god is with us and he will not forsake us That's His Word. That's His promise. You can bank on it. You don't have to hear God's voice today. But I'm telling you, what you do have to believe today is that He has not, that God will never leave you and that God will never forsake you. That's His promise. No matter your circumstance, no matter your future, that verse tells us, tells me, tells you that in spite of all that we've gone through and all that we face, that not for one moment... Not for one moment have we been forsaken by God. Because God is good and God is constant and God is sovereign. And when life hurts and we're at our worst and our world falls down, Hebrews 13.5 promises that God is with us. And he will not for a moment, not for one moment, moment forsake you. Will you bow your heads for just a moment? I wonder if you're here this morning and you go, Pastor, I don't know who you thought that message was for, but it was for me. Man, I I just hurt like that. I, I feel like that. I'm lonely like that.